This is a podcast Hi, from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Or into its Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Thanks to Kate Kingsmill for the last three hours with The Distance Guy. Kate will be back next Wednesday from 4 to 7pm. Uh, welcome to Wednesday night uh, with Bite Into It. Um, tonight on the show, I am Paul Callahan and I'm joined by the inevitable Dan Salmon. <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, yeah, inevitable. I like that. I like being described as inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to happen, regardless of what's going what, what, what's going around. I'm always going to happen. That was that was one of those moments um, where my little my COVID recovery brain was trying to find a word and couldn't and couldn't land it. It, it, um, it. Like you know what? Having discussed this just before we wanted to know how it was affecting your brain and seeing it in practice was just a, a thing of beauty, Paul. It's so, great to be with you. So for all, to all of you listeners out there, if, it, if I used the wrong words, uh, let's blame let's blame COVID. Um, uh, good show for you tonight. Um, thanks for joining us uh, this evening. We will be speaking with uh, Zoe Condliffe, uh, Zoe Condliffe, sorry, um, who's the CEO of She's a Crowd. Uh, they're data activists compiling a data set about gender-based violence. Um, and we'll also be joined by Dr. Emily van der Nagel, who will be talking to us about digital wills um, and how we can manage our online presence and our digital kind of portfolio media um, when we uh, die. Um, before then, um, as it's the shape of the show, lots of news uh, to, to sort of talk about. Um, big announcement this week's WWDC, Apple oh. doing their annual, here's a bunch of software, here's a bunch of hardware, basically prime, uh, pump priming us to get our new phones in September. And, and what have they put in there? What, what, what's going to make me ditch the phone that is perfectly usable? <laughs> so so lot, lots of new stuff. Um, kind of feels like... a. A mix of like big announce, like lots of kind of small announcements frequently mm. from WD, WDC. Um, so just kind of running through some of them. So iOS, if you've got a, if you've got an iPhone, you will get a new lock screen, which is exci- <laughs> exciting times. Sign me up. 
Um, so, live, probably things that have been on your Android phone for hundreds of years already. <laughs> uh, so, live little widgets, um, ability to customize it. Um, one of the one of the kind of little wrinkles, I think, if you've been using your iPhone uh, and have been using the focus mode, so you can set up am I at work, am I at home, so different lock screens for where you are. If you have trouble managing, if you're like me, <laughs> trouble managing, uh, you know, your Twitter uh, or your phone consumption. Uh, Updates to Apple Pay, um, which are kind of interesting. So features for letting you split the bill. This one really intrigues me because on on face value, it looks like, oh, okay, Apple's moving into the providing credit banking kind of sector. But it seems like, and Paul, I'm quite happy to be discor- to discorrect myself on this. <laughs> that I'm, I, I haven't had COVID. I'm just inarticulate. Um, but it looks like that they're just kind of making a promise to the person that you're buying the thing from that you're good for the money and they're just going to charge you four times over the over the subsequent month. Well yeah, so one of the features is they have this but Apple pay pay buy now pay later so kind of integrating that directly into your your Apple wallet. It it kind of seems a bit unclear at, at this stage. Mm. Um, is it just going to be for people who have Apple cards? Is it going to be anyone who's got kind of an, an iPhone and uses buy now pay later? Cuz I mean since covid like I've seen way more people use their phone, you know, oh, to tap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is it, but that just comes out of your credit card or your debit card. So interesting to sort of see how that functions and also the regulatory, like, are we all going to get it? I mm. think we probably need to spend more time digging through the massive lists that people have been writing Yeah. Um, about that. One of the, one of the slightly cooler parts uh, of iOS, which is, it, I saw someone talking about this and they were saying, that's an interesting feature to spend time on is uh, in the last version, the, the implemented machine learning so that you could copy text from images, mm-hmm. but they've extended that to video now. So you can now pause a video and basically pull copy text straight out of the video as text. Ooh. Well, like out of the subtitles, you mean? No, no, like from if you see a sign or something in, oh. in a video, you can like copy the text from that by pausing Whoa. the video. Okay. So yeah, like it kind of cool yeah. and weird and interesting, but yeah, a, a choice. Well, that's it. I suppose it's kind of yeah, a pro- an answer to a problem that we didn't realize we had. <laughs> so probably like to, Tim Cook has been like, I really want to do this. Yeah, like, it's, like, it's like, what does that sign one say? Single, one single use case. <laughs> um, Next gen CarPlay, probably one of the the kind of the the larger parts of it because it maybe speaks to Apple's longer term ambition. Mm. So basically, Apple's vision of the car is that rather than have a dashboard, you just have giant screens. And you plug your iPhone in, and it takes all of the data and presents it in a kind of an Apple-y fashion. So your speedometer, your mileometer. Oh, yeah, okay. interesting. Interesting, yeah. I mean, look, it kind of—I suppose it, it's borrowing from not that I've been in one, but I've seen from outside Tesla cars <laughs> yep. that they have that gigantic screen in the middle, which I suppose is, you know, that they they. they those people in those high-tech places just want us to be staring at screens the they whole time. They so just want us to be staring at screens. It makes perfect endlessly. sense that that's what Apple wants. So yep. And it'll be interesting to see if it's one of those deterministic things where Apple says jump and then everyone else says how high. Yeah. 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 No more windows, just screens. Yep. Um, on the hardware side, uh, Apple announced a new chip, their, their M2, which is a continuation of their, um, their silicon um, loads of spec stuff flying around. They're sort of spinning it as... 
you know, more powerful than the M1, um, their previous chip. And it was like an M1 Ultra or an M1 Max, like mm -hmm. a kind of an intermediate one. Um, but possibly not as powerful as some competitor chips, so they're still still kind of messaging it. Um, but like announced alongside that, a new and a redesigned MacBook Air, which immediately made me go, maybe I do need a new MacBook Air, <laughs> even though mine is only 18 months old. They have um, you. They've, they've got, got me. They've got you. They've got you. Um, and a new MacBook Pro. So if you've been, if you've been holding out uh, for some new hardware, uh, that's there. Um, and as every year, a new version of macOS, which for me has the most exciting feature. I will be able to use my iPhone as a webcam. Right. So there's a little kind of latch thing that you can connect to the top of your, your laptop or your screen and start using your iPhone as a webcam. Interesting. Yeah. So, and so they're ditching the inbuilt camera. No, they're, you... they're keeping that, but they're just saying, hey, if you want... If you want to use your flash, if you want to use some, an even higher resolution. I see. I yeah. see. All right. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense to me. It's been a long time since I've used a, used a Mac computer, so I wasn't <laughs> sure if they'd just kind of decided, yep, okay, it's time for us yep. to re – we're going to replace this camera with a camera that we know everyone else has. So, yeah, so lots to kind of like uh, dwell on. I know there'll be uh, – there's developer betas out for all of the, the kind of the software. There'll be public betas out if you, if you want to risk your, your devices on that. Um, but yeah, no doubt we'll talk more about that in September when everything launches along with the, the new phones. Absolutely. One, one thing that is uh, also in had finally going to launch, we've been talk talking about this for a few years now, and it does relate to Apple in a way, is that the European Union, uh, well, the European Commission, or is it the European Parliament? Uh, either way, <laughs> some part of Europe, some part of Europe, <laughs> have finally decided that um, they are going to mandate uh, a common uh, charging port or charging technology for all handheld devices. Um, so that's smartphones, laptops, tablets, and other small and medium-sized electronics um, by autumn twenty twenty-four. That's autumn Europe, so that would be spring twenty twenty-four. Here, um, they're going to be making everyone use USB Type C. Surprising nobody. Um, look, the EU have been kind of threatening to do this for a couple of years now, and um, it's essentially the, a provisional agreement between the European Parliament and the European Council. So there'll be a vote later in the year, and then uh, was it 24 months after that vote is when things will be required to uh, have USB-C as their primary charging port. If you if, um, lap, Laptops will be given an extra... Uh, 40 uh, months? So, yeah, 40 yeah. months left, so an extra 16 months. Um to change over from change over from whatever proprietary charging uh, technology they have, I can't see Apple being enormously pleased about this. They've been pushing back against it for as long as the idea has been floating around. Um, yeah, and but I think it it does. I mean, the argument is always about e-waste and about reducing that and being mm -hmm. able to kind of just sell phones without without chargers. So I think ultimately, the environmental argument, you know, makes um, perfect sense. Yeah, unused chargers are estimated to be about eleven thousand tons of e-waste annually um, according to eu lawmakers so even a small dent in that given you know the climate crisis that we find ourselves in definitely um makes a lot of sense yeah for so. sure i mean look it's all of the all the various uh naysayers around it are like oh you know it'll become an obsolete technology and like yeah look possibly but then the eu will probably mandate something else yeah. and, and as as it is USB-C, it's it's fast it's compact it's reasonably ubiquitous uh, i i say I, I think this is a good thing overall yeah for yep. sure. Um, what's going on with Sheryl Sandberg? Ah, <laughs> yes. Speaking of good things, well, look, it depends on who you ask. Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the 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 former, I'm gonna say CFO. No, what was she? She was she was uh, Meta 
she ran Meta. She basically was the person who went joined Mark Zuckerberg in the early days of Facebook and told him how to make money out of it. And as a result, we uh, Facebook owns all our data, and we are sold constantly to advertisers. So she um, has decided that it is time for her to hang up her headphones at Meta. Uh, she hasn't really indicated what she's going to do in the future, but I'm, I imagine that she's going to have herself a nice, a nice uh, severance package. Uh, it's her legacy is mixed. Let's let's just say. I mean, there are there are a lot of uh, people who make money out of the internet who see her as a kind of you know shining beacon. Uh, she definitely has championed the cause of women in technology. The, if you've heard the term "lean in," that is largely attributed to her. Um, but at the same time, there are people who um, uh, describe her in less than glowing terms as uh, the, as a person who's responsible for things like uh, genocides that are caused by uh, in misinformation being shared on Facebook. So Sheryl Sandberg will be very interested to see which, what she does next. Paul, have you got an opinion on Sheryl Sandberg? I mean, for, 14 years is a, is a long time. Um, and look, Facebook is is a challenging you know, within the context of a tech show, it's sort of always a challenging um, topic to bring up. And I think, it, as with all social media, like it absolutely has connected people and it absolutely has revealed the toxic underbelly that was always there and has created space for misinformation. So it's it's difficult, and it's also it's difficult to attribute that to one person yeah. as well, like all, all of that toxicity. So. Yeah, worth worth acknowledging the change. Definitely, I think, from definitely. our perspective on a show, um, sticking with social media um, and megalomaniacs. megalomaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those of you who've been following uh, the the saga of Elon Musk uh, attempting to buy Twitter for billions upon billions upon billions of dollars um, may not be surprised that it has hit uh, a little bit of a hump. Um, oh, a new one. What's, what's this one? A new one with Elon Musk uh, declaring the deal on hold uh, pending further information. Right, okay. Um, largely around the the statistics and the numbers that Twitter have, have shared about the amount of bots on the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter Twitter reports publicly that, that it's less than 5% of daily users um, are bots. Um, but obviously, uh, Elon Musk uh, disagrees with that figure and has filed with the SEC or the SEC um, in the in the US to to do it. The big challenge is obviously, um, you know, from the very start of this deal, there's always been a one billion dollar breakup fee mm. um, and a possible lawsuit if if it doesn't progress. So either way, Twitter's getting paid. And good for them, I yeah. suppose. Look, and if if you can get money out of Elon Musk, then I, I suggest you try because certainly the people who work for Tesla are being told that uh, they have to work forty hours a week in the office, or in the words of the great man, pretend to work somewhere <laughs> else. So, um, look, you know what? He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who uh, is going to give up on a, a dollar anytime soon. So, if you can get a billion out of him, I'd go for it. Do it, do it, Twitter. Absolutely. Hey, uh, it's uh, seven fifteen coming up on. 715. Uh, you're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR. Uh, we've got an inter- interesting interview, Paul, coming up after this uh, next track. Who, who are we going to be speaking to? Yeah, we're going to be speaking uh, to Zoe Condoliff from She's a Crowd, a social enterprise sourcing data to help uh, end gender-based violence.
We are joined by uh, Zoe Condliff now, who is a data activist, gender advocate, researcher, and founder and CEO of She's a Crowd. Um, Zoe started her first social enterprise in rural Cambodia and has since gained experience across the university, NGO, and startup sectors, becoming an outspoken leader in the social change sector. Thanks so much for joining us, Zoe. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Cool. Um, so tell us a bit about She's a Crowd. Yeah, so She's a Crowd is a feminist tech startup and we're based in Melbourne and Sydney and um, we've been around for about four years. So what we do is we exist to close the gender data gap. Around 90% of sexual assault is not reported to authorities and so we have a safe and anonymous reporting platform where any survivor anywhere in the world can share their story, whether it's of sexual assault, street harassment, domestic violence, or another form of gender-based violence. And we use all of those stories as data insights, which we provide to decision makers to support them to address the problem into the future. Cool. I mean, so it's interesting, the idea of the, the data gap that you've identified. Was that part of the the founding observation of, of the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's right. So when it comes to data, and I talk about um, data activism a lot and um, talk about the work that we do as data activism, really data reflects, you know, existing power dynamics in society. So a lot of the time we find that it's interesting to see which data are not collected or what's done with the data that is collected. And we know that there are significant barriers for survivors, for example, to report sexual assault to the police. There's fear of, you know, not being believed or mistrusting authorities or perhaps you just feel like it's going to be too difficult to go through that process. There's a lot of victim blaming and shaming going on. So a lot of the time these data are just not even collected and authorities or, like, the government, universities, workplaces are relying on um, really skewed data sets. So when you have only 10% of sexual assault being reported and you're only um, relying on crime statistics to understand an issue, you're not really going to be able to understand it properly, the depth and the breadth of it. So as data activists, what we do is collect counter data, and that's data that's not being collected by, um, yeah, in traditional ways, um, and we use crowdsourcing technology to do that. So it's interesting to think through... When you say like the the kind of the gaps and the the crowdsourcing, do you have? Is it a really open sort of data set, or is it really kind of are, are you reverse engineering kind of data points from a particular format, or do you are you trying to shape the data mm -hmm. that's coming in to provide that activism? Yeah. So what we do is we provide an open platform that anyone can use, and we've tried to. Um, we've designed it in a way that's really survivor-centric. So anyone can basically go on to she'sacrowd.com, which is just accessible by any browser, and can share their story. And once they've shared their story, their name and email are automatically separated from their story, and then our team go into the back end and they will um, do another round of de-identification and verification of those data. But it's really up to us on our side of things to um, basically make meaning from those data points. And then for the survivor, it's about them having a place where they can get it off their chest and feel that kind of sense of relief and make, you know, feel like their story really, really meant something. But yeah, what we really do is 
Um, we don't share. We have to be really, really careful, as you can imagine. It's really sensitive information, and it's people's stories. Um, and there's a lot of legal kind of implications here as well as ethical ones. So we've been really, really careful with which data actually we share to the public. So if you go on the She's a Crowd website, you can see Melbourne, for example, and you can see all of the public um, spots where people have experienced incidents and you can see the tags relating to those incidents, but you would not, for example, be able to see the qualitative data, so people's actual stories in their own words. Um, and that's that's what we hold on to and that's where we then draw insights from from that and and um zoe i'm really interested in knowing what kind of insights you've found thus far how how, how long has uh, the the platform been out there and what have you been able to glean uh in the time that you've been able to collect this data yeah so i mean that's a huge question there's a lot there's a lot there we have over one hundred thousand uh reports of sexual assault and gender-based violence in our database and um, we are the biggest geospatial data set for prevention of gender-based violence in the world um, that, I, that I know about. <laughs> Let me know if you, can, if you hear of any others. Um, but I, um, so what we've really focused on the first four years, um, which is we've been around since 2018, is creating a, a really amazing space where people can actually get this get, get the, their story off their chest and now what we have and we've and we've worked with department of transport um in victoria on um creating like a gender lens on public transport policy we've worked to redesign bike cages in melbourne um we've worked we're currently working with a rideshare company doing um more like gender advocacy around safer rideshare um experiences and we're starting to work with universities um, local governments and NGOs as well. And so you can see that there's so many use cases for these data um, because we can see exactly where something happened, exactly what happened, the time of day, the demographic details of that person that it happened to. And people can also see if they think that it was motivated by sexism or perhaps by racism or perhaps by transphobia. Um, so we can, we've got a lot of data here and we're only just beginning to scrape the surface of what we can actually do with it. So we're currently actually raising money through the She's a Cloud Fund, um, which is on our Instagram, so that our team of data analysts and their support team of social workers um, can actually create more and better data insights. And from there, we'll look at doing things like predictive behavioural analysis with the data, um, as well as delving deeper into particular topic areas. So, like, uh, sorry, I've covered brain, so I'm just trying to form uh, what my my next yeah. my next question is. Sorry about that. Um, I've had that twice. It's alright. Yeah, it's 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 such a weird experience. I think um, if we sort of look back to that question of of the you know the relationship that you find between the the individual sort of reporting and and this data. I mean, and, and you sort of highlighted a couple of that sense of them being able to share their story and the, the personal impact of that. Like, as part of your data activism, capturing the kind of the individual longitudinal data as well, like how this maybe fits into, you know, their, their dealing, mm -hmm. you know, with the event or dealing with their own trauma. Yeah, so that's such an interesting question and I actually don't really get asked that ever. So super excited to answer it. So we do impact measurement. So um, any social impact startup should have an impact measurement framework and that's where you're measuring your impact. Um, so one of the ways that we measure impact is through understanding the survivor experiences before and after 
they've shared their story through She's a Crowd. And so what we're working on right now is we're partnering with uh, a a kind of a machine learning type uh, company um, that uh, called Mesh AI, and we're in building like we're building a little chatbot in. So you'll be able to have uh, a bit give yourself a psychological self assessment as well as have support throughout the process and also share how you were feeling before, during, and after you shared your story with She's a Crowd. Um, we also collect feedback informally and formally through surveys and through social media. So, for example, a survivor recently told me that after sharing her story with She's a Crowd, the recurring nightmares that she'd had for years after her sexual assault finally stopped. And just hearing that stuff, I mean, like, it, it's quite incredible. I think we do underestimate the power of just, you know, sharing your story. And there's also research to show that Sharing um, things like sensitive mental health issues or stories to a bot or to um, an online space can also be really cathartic because you don't have that human level of judgment that you sometimes feel um, from sharing with someone else. So that's interesting as well. But my um, research that I do at Monash is actually looking much more longitudinally at you know, what survivors' experiences are after sharing their um, personal narratives of gender-based violence online. I mean, that's a, that's a, that observation that that you've just made about the almost the um, the impersonal nature of dealing dealing with technology is is very much almost the opposite of a lot of a lot of what we we hear about things like social media. Um, yeah. And yeah, like un, unpacking that was that something was that something you expected to happen, or was that something you sort of have discovered through your research and your work? Look, I mean, I don't think anyone expected that. I I I. I find myself like, I feel like I'm someone who I've never underestimated the power of sharing a story. That's why I started She's a Crowd. That's why I work in gender advocacy. I'm doing my PhD on this. I'm obsessed with it. I do it all the time. I was today out there at another speaking engagement doing that myself. I love that. But I did not, I honestly did not realize how significant and important it is. Um, for, for individuals and as a collective to share our stories, even looking at like hashtag activism and being able to share your personal experience and see it collected among, you know, other people that have shared a similar personal experience under a hashtag, for example, is fascinating. And what I continue to, I feel like I continue to underestimate this is like, just how cathartic and healing that process can actually be and also how it can kind of transform your identity. Like we've basically seen an entire feminist movement come out of a hashtag um, and I, I don't think anyone's going to debate the legacy of Me Too anymore, um, you know, the pros and cons and all, all, all of the above, but, you know, it has created basically an entire movement just because there was a, a hashtag, this way of kind of grouping what we feel are very traumatic and experiences that we should be ashamed of. And when, when we group those, we realise that we're not alone. And that's really powerful. And that's the idea that She's the Crowd is harnessing. Zoe, you mentioned before that you've been partnering with um, government organisations to kind of utilise the data. Are, are there any, um, I suppose, uh, opportunities you can see that you haven't necessarily had, had, a, had a chance to exploit yet? There's a lot. So we're really interested in speaking to universities in particular about sexual assault on campus and providing them with access to data because we have so much data about 
um, student experiences both on and off campus. Um, we're also really looking at um, LGAs because our data set is very much a geospatial data set. That's one of the things that makes us quite unique. Um, we can kind of gain a lot of insight into neighbourhoods and how neighbourhoods are functioning um, for everyone. Because if we design um, cities that are safe for the most vulnerable part of the population, we design cities that are safe for everyone. And so we would expect that, you know, um, local government uh, should be very interested in our data and be very interested in taking proactive, preventative action on gender-based violence in their communities. I want to I look back a little bit and sort of, I mean, I know we talked about sort of the anonymizing part of it. Like, how, how challenging is that, that approach to, to privacy and, and sort of the online safety um, of dealing with, you know, people in a very vulnerable state and within vulnerable communities? Like, how, how have you navigated those challenges? It's extremely challenging and it's, it takes a lot of... Uh, patience, I would say. So one thing that we see happen a lot in this crowdsourcing kind of space and in the startup space is people saying, oh, yeah, I'll just do that too and I'll just collect a few stories. Um, and we've seen that backfire so many times because I don't think that people really realise how truly complex and sensitive these data really are. And we work with state government and uh, we have to basically clear a very kind of we have to go through a very rigorous data security process. And so we've spent a good part, I would say, of the last four years really honing in. We've had ethics panels. We've had, um, we've had to jump through many, many different hoops and really think about and consider um, and balance the survivor um, kind of experience with the data, um, the, yeah, the, I guess, collecting good data and then think about what are the legal implications there and what are the um, security implications there. So, yes, we have to basically do a lot of work to ensure that um, the data that we collect is done in the right way by the user, um, but then also is kept really securely and managed appropriately and then distributed ethically. Which, which is almost like the, in some ways, the opposite of that kind of startup uh, mindset of like, let's move fast and break things. Like, you have to bring like a, a sensitivity to this type of work. Like, yeah. how, how do you balance that sort of mm. being in, you know, a tech startup with, or like, or a, you know, a not for profit um, uh, or a social enterprise with the needs of that, you know, community that you're connecting with? Yeah, and we are a tech startup, and, yep. and yeah, we're a social impact tech startup, but we very much sit in that world. And so you're 100% right. It's like the mentality in the startup world is like go out there and try it and fail, fail fast and, you know, whatever. So I've, I've always said, you know, I don't necessarily think there's a lot of things about startup world that I actually don't think are particularly inclusive or particularly useful for minority founders because we're often solving complex social problems that only we see. So obviously I could talk for days about how only 2% of venture capital goes to female founders, but that's another topic. But really with this, I've been just very, very adamant that we need to get this right for survivors first and then we can move on to scaling. And that's what we're doing now. So we've gotten it right and we're obviously always iterating and improving, but we've pretty much figured out 
um, what our solution and what our product is for our for, for survivors, um, and we have amazing feedback on that front. And then now we're turning to scaling. So we're raising $1.5 million um, capital raise at the moment so that we can build out our customer product and scale. Um, and that's going to – but that's taken us four years. So that's probably double um, what it might take another startup. But that's because we have a social impact bottom line and we have a double-sided marketplace. And we're dealing with a too sensitive topic area. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if, if people are interested, Zoe, what, what can they do? How can they support the project? How can they find out more? Well, we're currently, uh, we've got the She's a Crowdfund open, which is for anyone who has 20 bucks in their pocket and wanna, wants to help us out. And the link is in our Instagram, at She's a Crowd. And there's heaps of beautiful, high-quality merch available for everybody who donates as well. Um, so that would be the number one way you can help us get our data where it needs to go. But if you're a survivor and you need support resources, we've got those on our website as well. And you are always welcome to share out share your story through She's a Crowd whenever you're ready, whenever that feels good for you. Um, and, yeah, go on our website and um, get in touch with me if you're interested in working with us. Great. Thanks so much for speaking with us. That was um, Zoe Conley from She's a Crowd. Um, and for more information, head to she'sacrowd.com. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr Emily van der Nagel uh, is a lecturer in social media at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, whose research interests include social media identities, social media cultures, pseudonymity, got that one out even with COVID brain, anonymity, intimacies, memories and algorithms. Um, uh, and tonight, Emily joins us to talk about digital wills and what happens to our online presence when we die. Thanks for joining us, Emily. You're very welcome. Um, so, Emily, I'm really curious uh, just to get a sense of the scope of this issue. Like, what are we what what are we talking about when we sort of talk about our online presence or this idea of digital wills? Well, I think the idea, uh, you know, I mean, the scope of it is pretty much as broad as um, what do you consider to be your digital stuff, you know? So this is going to vary from person to person, but I mean, our daily experience of having a number of accounts on different platforms, um, of, you know, subscribing to lots of different things, streaming services, social media, emails... We know that the amount of digital stuff that we have is growing. What we don't know as much is what happens to it all after we're no longer there to log in. And and the the idea the the kind of the observation as well that it's kind of we're at the um, the mercy of corporations for a whole bunch of this stuff as well. Like all of our accounts kind of just live on magic computers, like around the world. How how do we navigate that as individuals? There's always a really delicate balance to be struck, I think, between having privacy over your accounts when you're alive and then um, ensuring the right people get access to it after you die. So this is this is difficult for both individuals and actually companies, you know. I mean, com um, technology companies, they really love to promise privacy is going to be something that you can count on when you log in to their services. 
So they don't want to jeopardise that by simply then turning around and suggesting, oh, but when you die, definitely your partner can just log in and grab all of your stuff, right? So there's, um, there, there are very interesting ways to, to get around that kind of thing. Um, and third-party services, there are various kinds of, of legacy management systems that are starting to get built into platforms that we know. And do you think that, um, uh, that part of that is, you know, these giant companies, like, I, I mean, I guess, like, death isn't necessarily a topic that's built into what they do. Do you think this kind of, they're resistant to think about it? Do you think they're resistant to kind of ha open up these ideas or, or was it just something they never even thought about at the start? I don't think this is something that was front of mind for platforms for example, Facebook, when, when it began, was about um, Harvard University students. Death is very far from the, the US college experience, and I don't think that it was really considered very early on in Facebook's life. But certainly, as um, memorialization practices have grown and shifted and, and changed, yeah, we've, we've seen more, I guess, to address what happens at this really critical time. There's going to be a point at which there are more dead Facebook users than alive Facebook users. We, you know, <laughs> death is part of the human experience. And um, we, we also understand that technology companies are maybe not the best equipped to, um, you know, give us that kind of rich human experience that we might want from them. And, and Emily, I'm interested to know if um, you've got examples around what best practice might look like compared to what, I don't want to say worst practice, but I'm going to say the standard practice <laughs> would be. Have, have, have you been able to discern what, what the, what the better, better examples of that are? I think um, it's, you know, maybe best practice... And look, Facebook's not usually at the forefront of, of best practice in terms of technology and, <laughs> um, and digital rights and privacy. But I have to say that the legacy contact that Facebook has set up has, um, has at least to my mind, having you know not having managed one myself, um, but it looks it looks pretty uh, useful in in that you can nominate a person who also has a Facebook account to be your legacy contact. Then you put a lot of trust in that person to basically execute your wishes um, after you've passed away. I guess worst practice would basically just look like a company hasn't even thought of what might happen. You know, the, the idea that a loved one tries to log into your account after you die to close it or to send out a, a final message, and they just can't do that because it's completely opaque and locked off to them. I mean, picking up picking up on the idea about about Facebook legacy accounts, like like some of this some of this is kind of administrative, you know, in a real way. Like, who gets my DVDs? Like, who gets access to my you know my iCloud photos? But like, what's the social aspect of this? How might it change our relationship to to sort of mourning and to ritual? Like, is that do you think? I mean, it inevitably will. But do you have a sense of how that will evolve? Look, there's, there are real complexities around what it means to um, be part of a network with a person who has died. We know, for example, that, um, you know, that, that, that Facebook had a real challenge on their hands when it turned out that after somebody had passed away, they, they didn't have a neat 
way to switch off the sort of recommendation algorithms. People were finding it quite creepy at one stage to have a recommended, you know, contact. You want to add this person to your friend list when they knew that person um, was dead and, and wouldn't be interacting with them anymore. Like, there are there are things to consider that... Um, that really seem like new territory and also socially it can be very complex to have a public facing account that then takes on a really different register if you memorialize a page on facebook it tends to mean that only people who are already part of your network can post things because you know there's also been cases of um, people trolling the pages of, of dead people and dead friends that has resulted in some really unpleasant experiences that seem to be part of mischief, but also part of our, I guess, you know, uncomfortable feelings around death and what it means. Yeah, and I guess with that sort of networked, you know, like mourning as, as such a, a, a personal sort of set of moment and such a personal set of you know interactions and and responses i guess again coming back to that that question about these global corporations like are they really set up to to deal with the individual um and that that sense of sense of data i mean do you think we will develop like online like collections of online rituals do you think it'll be geographically located like how do how do we as people respond to this I think it's really it's it's always been soothing in some kind of way to to feel like you can you still have a connection to a person who who you love that's passed away. We've had we've seen you know mourning and memorialisation practices um, in in the past extend to things like you know writing a letter to a dead loved one or um, or cherishing the the special photos that you took together. It makes sense that in an environment that's so digitally networked, people really appreciate the connection that they still feel they have with someone. You can see a lot of instances of, you know, tagging a dead person on on Twitter to just say that you miss them or share a memory, not just with, you know, with with the account that might now be closed, but also with the existing and extended network around that person. Having something like a Facebook memorial page or still having access to, to, to somebody's Twitter account, for example, it is a kind of connection that we value. And I think being able to come back to that digital space um, in a lot of occasions really does offer some form of comfort um, and some idea that there there still is an important element to that relationship. Yeah, th- those ideas of, of this not just... I mean, it is a, these ideas are complex, but actually it does boil, come back to like a human connection and the sense of like how do we have a relationship and how do we move on and like the, the technology can can function in a in a positive way um sort of moving slightly left a little bit like where where does liability for this you know sit with the with the platforms to you know there was an example in some of the research you did about you know someone um someone you know having an accident at an airbnb and where the kind of the platform liability around around that would land 
Yeah, more tricky stuff. Yep. There's there's this idea that um, that responsibility for for something like you know a death or for managing somebody's accounts or um, you know th- this idea that someone can still have a kind of um, you know connection or responsibility. I feel I feel like that can be really difficult. I mean, if you're a company you don't want to simply suggest that any kind of post-mortem communication is solely owned and managed by you. But I guess to some degree, you sort of don't want your hands all the way off altogether because, you know, it's interesting to think that even if somebody dies and and a loved one wants to log into their accounts, they do become a kind of user of the platform in a different way. So what responsibility does a platform then have to not just an individual person, but to the people who form their network as well? And, and like, in terms of that global context as well, I guess, like, does it, presumably different jurisdictions have different responsibilities for wills and different responsibilities for that liability. Is is that something that, that kind of... I guess just another layer layer of challenge within that kind of globalized context. It could be, and um, you know, and, and to introduce yet another complication, it, some of these things have to do with um, different jurisdictions and, and how they approach something as um, as would be simple as age, right? We we know that people um, that young people become adults at different points in different cultures, and that has a legal bearing as well. You know, we've we've seen instances, for example, of um, there's a really famous case of a of a, a young girl passing away um, after. Uh, you know, after dying by suicide, and her parents were not legally able to get access to her account on Facebook because, you know, they they wanted to log in and see if they could find any clues as to what happened and get a bit more of the story. They weren't allowed to do that, and there are there are very particular restrictions around things like minors and children and how their privacy is protected. That, that can be very useful in some contexts, but maybe can form a bit of a bit of a block when things, you know, um, are in a completely different context, and that young person has passed away. Yeah. Um, so, what what are the what are the practical things that that we can do that our listeners can do, like sort of day to day, or like right now what what should we all be thinking about how should we be planning our sort of digital wills and our digital legacies um well there's there's it's definitely one of those things to think about and i feel like when it comes time to um maybe set up a will or think about you know even at tax time or consider the pros and cons of say becoming an organ donor there are similar kinds of questions that everybody can ask about their online stuff. So, you know, really it's important to know that um, the, the attachment that a person has to their digital legacy will look a little bit different for everybody. And so I think individually it's a good thing to sit down and actually make some decisions. What would you like to keep or what would you like to to stick around after you die? For some people, it might be not very much at all. You know, they they might see an account like Twitter or Facebook or, you know, social media platforms to be quite ephemeral and they might be very happy to simply let go and to 
have them um, technically be online but not really maintained in, in the long term. For other people, they might have very specific kinds of wishes. They might want to broadcast one last message or they might want uh, a loved one to log into their Twitter account and just let their followers know what's happened, right? <laughs> so it's important to have a bit of a think. What's important to you about your kinds of online accounts? What would you like to keep? And if, if, it, if the answer is something, whether it's digital pictures or, um, you know, a, an archive of your tweets, maybe having a bit of a think about how you might want to store that digital information, where it might go, um, what you might include in it, how often to update it, and importantly, who you can trust to leave that information to, that might be a very important part of legacy planning that um, folds into our thoughts and our cultural practices around a will and what that means. Do, and, Emily, do you think it, it might be something we see in the not-too-distant future where if someone was to go to, like, you know, the online will kits or to go to a lawyer to actually get this stuff written up, that they get asked to consider that as part of the standard process? Oh, certainly. You can leave passwords with lawyers right now. Um, but, uh, you know, but as, as, as quickly as people try to organise and sort through this stuff... Um, digital platforms tend to change and shift and introduce new things. For example, now, just because you have someone's password doesn't mean instant access to every single account they might own, especially when you think about something like two-factor authentication, which, again, really important to have privacy um, and to keep your digital stuff secure just for you while you're around. But I feel like there needs to be a little bit more thought about what might come next. Absolutely, and I think that that's definitely something worth uh, taking away. Thank you so much for your uh, time tonight. We've been speaking with Dr Emily Vandernagel from Monash University, and thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. And if this uh, discussion has raised any issues for you, uh, you can speak to Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 or Lifeline on 131114. Triple R. You're listening to Bite Into It with Paul and Dan. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, lighter things to finish the show with. Um, breaking news out of CNN. And when I say that, what I mean is... That... <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. CNN have decided that they use their breaking news uh, tags on their articles way too much. So if you um, are the kind of person who enjoys seeing like the little red star at the top of an article being like, yes, something new, because all I do is scroll through the news over and over and over again. I don't do that at all. Um, you'll probably be seeing less of that out of CNN. Um, their, their main reason for doing it is that um, they think that we've been seeing... Uh, they, they want to be informing and not alarming their viewers, and they think it's been a bit overused. So they're, they're making an effort to use less of it. Interesting uh, idea. Yeah, and just very quickly, um, if you were hoping to get a drone equipped with a taser from Exxon, <laughs> you are... You are sadly uh, out of luck. They have halted their plans um, after the majority of its AI intelligence ethics board quit. 
Um, so good news, good news for most people. Bad news for anyone who wanted one of those. Um, and and if you wanted a drone with a taser on it, maybe you should just take a moment and think about the decisions that you're making in your life. Um, thank you so much to our guests this evening, Zoe Conlove and Dr. Emily Vandernego, um, and also to Talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy and podcaster Carrie Smith. We've been buying into it with Paul Callahan and Dan Salmon. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew next. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 